Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey guys, I am hitting the road. It all begins this Saturday in Toronto, just down the road. But the Canada Land Cross Canada Book Tour, sponsored by Frank and Oak, I will be at the Hot Docs Festival on Saturday. Still some tickets left to that. And then shows in Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Calgary, Saskatoon, Montreal, London, Hamilton, Kingston. Not necessarily in that order. Go to canadalandshow.com slash book tour to get your tickets now. And this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move a reality. Their beautifully designed templates and customizable features will help you create a beautiful website simply and intuitively. Go to squarespace.com, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Omar Mualam. Hey, Jesse. I believe you are the most nominated journalist at this year's National Magazine Awards? Allegedly, yes. Congratulations on that and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Okay, today we are going to talk about Harjit Sajjan. Is he a badass no longer? We are going to talk about uh, how Christy Blatchford got served. And we're going to talk about cultural appropriation. It is not okay, Nami. Good to have you back. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Kate Brady, Jonathan Blunden, 
Greg Clark, Matthew Birch, Stephen Finnegan, Thor Bjarnason, Dylan Thomas Matheson, and Solomon Macy. Solomon, why did you decide to be awesome? You know, no topic is ever black and white, but uh, you often invite people with counter positions to your own, which uh, is really interesting and I think is really important to journalism as a whole. And once again, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. You may have a big idea. You may have a little idea. You may have an idea that isn't quite developed yet. Whatever it is, you can start bringing it into the world. You can create an eye-catching website to bring it to life using Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work or a store to sell your products or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace will give you everything you need to look like an expert from the start. This is the easiest way to get a very modern, very beautiful website up and running. You even get a unique domain, which will strengthen your brand and make it easier for visitors to find you. They have award-winning templates. It is incredibly intuitive. You can add and arrange your content with a click of a mouse. Support is 24-7. Think of them as your IT department. They're constantly upgrading this thing. Your website will never fail. You always have somebody there who will help you out with whatever you need. Make your next move. Start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code CANADALAND to get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that is squarespace.com, offer code CANADALAND. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. If this whole debate were only about whether Harjit Sajjan is sorry, it would be over. But the big unanswered question is why he said what he said and how much it undermines his credibility with the military and the public. This is a serious issue and it's deeply offended those who were actually on the battlefield. 
And he said these things as far back as 2015. We know that the defense minister has trouble telling the truth. Uh, nobody trusts him on the defense policy review. I guess it's what happens when you have no possible answer to a minister of defense who has told a whopper about his record. And that, Mr. Speaker, is not something you would apologize for. It's something that you have to step down for. Hey, hey. Okay, Omar, we just heard a bunch of politicians calling Harjit Sajjan, the Minister of Defense, a coward, a liar. He was accused of stealing valor, and there were multiple calls for his resignation. But I hear he's not here to make excuses. He's not here to make excuses. He said he was the architect of Operation Medusa. And... It's interesting. I heard all of these people saying these things about him. They are so incensed that he would steal credit for this. So incensed that he they, they suggest that his position is untenable. He must resign. But the people we just heard are not themselves veterans, right? They're politicians. And, and you know, it's sort of like that's what they do. If they sense weakness, they, they call for resignation. So I was just wondering, like, has anybody... In the military, you know, some these people, they're crusading on behalf of the offense taken by people in the military. So I was looking around to see if anybody in the military was as angry about this architect quote. And, and I'm not sure if this is the only military veteran to comment, but this is the only one that I could find. Bruce Moncur is a veteran of the Afghanistan conflict, and he appeared on a recent episode of The Current, and he was offended. Here's what that sounded like. I don't understand why anyone would want credit for being an architect for uh, the Battle of Operation Medusa. He wasn't part of the assault, so I didn't see him there. I never witnessed him at all. So I think that that's, you know, uh, not in respect to the memory of those soldiers that did uh, pay the ultimate sacrifice. I think this is par for the course in terms of the Liberal government. I mean, you have a Prime Minister that puts his hands on uh, a co-worker. Uh, you have a uh, minister that lied about her refugee status and other people are being deported for that. And now you have uh, Stajan who's doing this. Okay, so that's a bit of what he said. Uh, he said that he didn't see Harjit Sajjan in Afghanistan. He also said that this shows no respect to the soldiers who died in Afghanistan. Moncour said that the apology that Sajjan gave is par for the course for the liberal government. And then what you didn't hear there is he flew off into this like larger critique of Trudeau and the liberals. So here he was, a veteran who was very offended by Harjit Sajjan. And then he mentioned at the, at the very end that his future plans are to become Canada's first man because, of course, he is the spouse of Nikki Ashton, the NDP MP who's running for party leadership. In fact, it was Anna Maria Tremonte who, like, five and a half minutes into this interview says, oh, we should probably mention that you're married to NDP MP Nikki Ashton, but you're speaking for yourself here. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm totally speaking for myself. And N Nikki Ashton, she is running to lead the NDP. She wants to be the next prime minister. And when he starts taking shots at the liberal government as a whole, that is inseparable from the interests of his wife. I mean, come on, what's going on here? I have to admit, I missed it the first time that uh, Anna Maria Tremonti mentioned it. And, and it really took me by surprise at the very end, though there was a bit of a red flag where at one point he said that Mr. Sajan is, uh, you know, he's he's acting like a liberal, not a soldier. 
That was a bit of a red flag. That, yeah, that's a bit of a tell. Partisanship, <laughs> a little, <laughs> little bit. I, unfortunately, they they didn't disclose that from the top because you know I I did think it was a very good interview. It is not like he he can't speak for veterans. He's actually the founding member of the Afghanistan Veterans Association of Canada, so he does actually have some credibility on this topic. He has credibility and he has a great big conflict of interest. And maybe it's okay to speak with him about this, but maybe that like we're digging them for a clerical error, you know, like, oh, they disclosed it halfway through. They should have done it at the beginning. But the thing is, especially about radio, like a podcast, you can't miss the beginning of a podcast, right? Like you download it, you start listening to it. Unless you're very intentionally looking for something, you're going to hear it from the beginning. But on the radio, people tune in and out all the time, which is why on the radio, they're always saying, I'm speaking now to Omar Mwala. And they, they introduce, they reintroduce. So in this instance, I think it's at least like fairly egregious, but I would I would go bigger than that with this because like when you talk about Harjit Sajjan, we built him up. We inflated that balloon. How many articles when he was named Minister of Defense with that photo of him rushing into battle with a big smile? Badass. He's a badass. He's such a badass. And now we're so quick to pop that same balloon. And it made me wonder, like, well, what is at the root of this? Like this claim, this unfortunate claim, I'm the architect, I'm the architect, and he's a liar. And uh, Sandy Garcino at the National Observer, she reprinted in full this letter of recommendation from Brigadier General David Fraser, who was the commander of the task force in Afghanistan, okay? And here's what he said about Harjit Sajjan's actual role in Operation Medusa. He tirelessly and selflessly devoted himself to piecing together the ground truth on tribal and Taliban networks in the Kandahar area, and his analysis was so compelling that it drove a number of large-scale theater-resourced efforts, including Operation Medusa. And then he goes on to say that in collecting this intelligence, he put his life on the line every day. So here we have Harjit Sajjan risking life and limb and doing an incredible job of getting information that drove... Operation Medusa. So if he's not the architect of Operation Medusa, he's certainly unarchitect. And others have pointed out that like you can almost distill this down to a grammatical error on his part. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I I think that uh, this is indicative of someone being uh, indeed a politician and and not a soldier anymore. Because anyone who's talked to soldiers, Canadian soldiers, and and people in these the sort of you know semi military rankings like police officers, fire fires, you know that that they usually take a bit of a modest approach. It's it's pretty uncouth to take any credit for something, even if you deserve it. And then especially when you get into this question of stolen valor, you really just you don't take credit for other people's sacrifice. And and this is, I mean, it's a legitimate issue. It can uh, seed mistrust and disloyalty and really hurt morale. And it's not like he doesn't have a connection to to the Canadian army anymore. He's the minister of defense. So it is pretty important that he that he maintains his credibility with uh, with the military. I think that there is something here, and I I guess I just feel like I would want to know from people who aren't married to NDP leadership candidates how big a deal this is or Mm. or whether they give them a pass because, like, it was just, like, to see him so deflated, hunched over, apologizing, it felt like, does anyone care about this who's outside of the bubble? And it's not as if this guy, like, it just feels, like, so sad because it's not like he doesn't have bona fides when it comes to claiming a distinguished military career, claiming bravery. And yes, he is a politician now, so he has to toot his horn more than a soldier would. Of course, he has to, he has to sort of tell his story because it's, it's often the story that gets you elected. Yeah, he is in a different role right now. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to come back to your point earlier about, or your question earlier about how much did we, the press, inflate this ourselves? How much of a part did we play? It 
it kind of reminds me, I mean, right right now is the one year anniversary of the Fort McMurray wildfires. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, hero treatment that um, Chief Darby Allen got at the time. I mean, a- anyone who has talked to firefighters, probably off the record, though, I think CBC was able to get a couple on the record, would say that um, he probably got a lot more glory than he deserved. One-on-one, a lot of firefighters are frankly kind of pissed that he was made into a singular hero when, uh, in fact, he wasn't part of the ground effort, and um, and he even left Fort McMurray for a period of the fires. People in these ranking systems, they're, they're typically pretty modest, and... You know, like I like I said, it, it it actually can hurt morale, and so I think media likes the singular hero. It's 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 easy. It taps into a primal understanding of narrative. You know, Joseph Campbell's monolith or something like that. And I think the minister took advantage of that when he started to call himself the architect of uh, Operation Medusa. And it wasn't the first time that he said this. Mm-hmm. You know so much about the Fort McMurray fire. It's, you you should write a book about it, man. Well, thanks very much for that uh, <laughs> for that little plug. Why don't you tell everybody the name of your book that you co-authored that's on the shelves now? It's called Inside the Inferno. It's co-written with Captain Damien Asher, and uh, it is an instant bestseller. I'll, I'll, I'll see you on the bestseller list, I hope, on the Canadian nonfiction list. That's right. I think you're absolutely right. There's nothing that we love more than just finding one person to attribute all credit to and building up some kind of hero figure. If there's anything we love more than that, it's the takedown. And often it's that same person, you know? That's very true. Omar, let's do a little thing called Duly Noted. Let's Duly Note. I would like to Duly Note that you will be sitting in for me for the next uh, four Monday episodes of Canada Land. I heard about that. Yes, I'll be guest hosting Canada Land for the month of May. I will still be on Shortcuts every Thursday, but you are going to be in the host chair from Edmonton, mostly. I think you might do one show from Toronto, somewhere in there. And, you know, sometimes when the host is on book leave or taking a break, they get a guest host who can kind of like keep the seat warm and they save the good topics and the good guests until the main host gets back. And I, I don't get that that's your plan at all. No, we're, we're, we're taking over. The West is taking over. It's going to be Alberta land for, uh, for the next four episodes. I've had a look at some of the stuff you're working on. Every topic is something that I just like, wow, I want to listen to that. So thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I can't, I can't wait to put it together. I think people are going to love it. You're going to be great. What do you have to duly note today? Um, I want to duly note Paula Simons of the Edmonton Journal has uh, received uh, an honorary mention from the Canadian Committee for World Press Freedom for some incredible work that she's been doing exposing the faults in Alberta's child welfare system. Um, she's done so much great reporting on this issue, and um, and she's been relentless. And because she's a columnist, she's able to take a little bit of uh, an advocate role as well. And she's doing it in, as we know, Post Media's emaciated newsroom. The work in particular that's being recognized here is uh, some policy analysis and reporting that she did on a four-year-old First Nations girl that died in foster care. As a result of this reporting, provincial the provincial government is now launching a ministerial panel on child intervention. So I hope that people will take a look at that and um, maybe we can, we can all learn something from Paula Simon's work. You know what, Paula Simon's in the sort of like panoply of Canadian columnists we're always getting irate and giving so much attention to a, a certain cadre of people because they're just serial offenders of sensibilities. And there's so many kind of like talking out of your ass, phoned in uh, opinion pieces. And yet some people take that role of columnist and do some wonderful things with it. And it's wonderful to see her getting some recognition. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a reporter first and a columnist second. I think anyone who's uh, who's watched her work so closely will, will tell you that. 
duly noted. Omar, I have one last one, and it's kind of like, I want to duly note an observation. I want to duly note that we have to recognize that we have been had by Kevin O'Leary. Like, we have to take a second and recognize what a bunch of suckers he played us for. Yeah, no, he he, he really did. I mean, <laughs> how could we not have known that this manipulative businessman was going to manipulate us for his business interests? He is only a shrewd manipulator of the media. It was my first thought when I saw him on CBC opining. I thought, this guy's a bit of a hack. He's playing the businessman bad guy Lex Luthor character, but he he is basically running roughshod over CBC News Network because he figured out just how to play a character, which is what CBC doesn't know and what American cable news knows, is that everybody has to have a very instantly recognizable character. And they lapped him up and they gave him more and more airtime and then they gave him his own show where he was talking about the news every day. He was nothing before they anointed him. And then the whole trajectory led to this candidacy. Meanwhile, he's just spinning it off into promotional opportunity after promotional opportunity, his wines, his fund, it's all built on a house of cards. As Bruce Livesey did a wonderful job documenting, like reports of his business wizardry are greatly exaggerated. And and it was just, I think, apparent to anybody with an ounce of sense, I, I'm not claiming any kind of special insight that the candidacy was itself a publicity stunt. So when he withdrew, I said like, what the media needs to do now is acknowledge that we have been hustled and figure out how to not be hustled again. And there are a lot of reporters who were very angry about that. And, and they took that as a criticism that, I, that they said, well, what are we supposed to do? We have to cover him. That I was saying that they shouldn't have covered him. He was, the, he was in the lead in the polls. We have to cover him. And look, no one's saying that you don't cover the person who's in the lead in the, in the polls for the leadership race, but we're so predictable. We're so manipulatable because we're so predictable. If we are just functionaries and reactionaries who just, if this, then we cover and we do it this way. And people were saying things like, I mentioned in my coverage that he's a bit of a hustler, or I mentioned that the fact that he doesn't speak French probably means that this won't work out. What do you want from us? So I'm not attacking any reporters with this. I just feel like, is there a, like a facility within this industry to reflect to look in the mirror, to look at things holistically. Like, like, are we able to do that? Sure, of course. I mean, journalism is a public service, but journalism is also a business. And we all knew that, you know, with with every article or segment on Kevin O'Leary, it was going to be at least hate-clicked by a large proportion of Canadians. This is true, but I don't know a editor or reporter who is paid in clicks or who has a direct relationship between I'm going to hold my nose and run this piece because it's going to perform incredibly well. Now, we like when things perform well. We like when our stories are widely shared and widely read. But the idea that we are like running a, a straight up traffic for cash or traffic for career success promotion business, I think is itself something that people ascribe to us that is not so. Well, I think maybe Kevin O'Leary has proved otherwise. Oh, yeah. Duly noted. And Omar, I'm going to take a moment to thank our second sponsor today, and that is Casper Mattresses. I sleep on a Casper mattress every night. I have been very happy with this mattress since it arrived in an improbably small box, and we opened it up, this vacuum-sealed mattress, and poof, it just opened in our bedroom, a king-size mattress, and I've been sleeping very well ever since. Casper is, of course, the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress to rule them all. They cut out the big showrooms. They cut out a very bizarre pricing and naming structure, which the mattress industry uses to make it impossible to comparison shop. They are sticking it to big mattress and you can too. You can get a really good mattress for a really good price. And if you don't like it, you can send it back. 
Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. It is obsessively engineered. It is at a shockingly fair price. It combines supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. The shipping is free to U.S. and Canada, and returns are free as well if you need that. Try Casper for 100 nights, risk-free, in your own home. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. It is designed, developed, and assembled in the United States of America. They want you to know that. Special offer. You will get $50 off of their already very low prices because you are a listener of this show. Go to Casper.com, use the promo code CanadaLand. Once again, Casper.com, promo code CanadaLand. And if you love filling out surveys as much as some people do, they want to know a little bit about you, go to podcastlistener.com slash Canada to find out what Casper wants to know. Hey, your call. So speaking of other columnists, Christy Blatchford has been served with a notice of libel, as has Post Media. Yes, she has been. This, uh, I mean, this this whole case is a shit show uh, with litigious and manipulative personalities clashing. And that's before we get to the column itself and before we get to Glenn Canning, the father of Retea Parsons, tweeting out someone's dick pic. Yeah. You know what? I'm not even going to go there. I feel like this this story, it involves a university instructor, Mike Kidd, his former student, Tara McPherson, allegations of sexual abuse and... It is a messy, complicated story that we do not know the full truth of, and I'm not going to even attempt to offer a summary. I don't want to talk about the story. It's very ugly. It's ugly, it's confusing, and and there are, I think, a number of processes in play to try to get to the bottom of it. Let's focus on the journalism about it. Chrissy Blatchford's headline, which we won't ascribe to her, who knows who, who wrote it, again, a man's life left in ruins while his sexual assault accuser goes about hers. I don't know if she wrote that headline, but it certainly reflects what was written in the piece. I'll just talk about what, on a basic level of analyzing a piece of journalism or the viability of this libel claim, we get in the the, the notice of libel a list of just straight up alleged factual inaccuracies. So according to Tara McPherson through her lawyer, Blatchford wrote as fact that she was in a consensual sexual relationship with her alleged abuser. And Tara McPherson says, no, I wasn't. Blatchford reports as fact that the guy was separated from his wife at the time of the sexual relationship and living alone. McPherson says, no, that's not true either. Blatchford gets McPherson's age wrong. Blatchford writes that she asked the guy for dick pics. McPherson says, that's not true. Blatchford writes that she refused to give her phone to the cops when they were investigating it. McPherson says, that's not true. Blatchford says that the first thing she did was complain to the university president. And that's not true either, says McPherson. And it goes on and on and on. There's like uh, 17 or 18 points in the notice of libel. Now, I don't know if in fact Blatchford got all of those things wrong. But I'll tell you one thing that Blatchford has admitted. She never called McPherson to verify any of this information. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, she she hasn't. It, it, it is, I mean, for, for those of us who work in the industry, maybe those of us who don't might find that incredibly shocking. But for those of us who, who do work in the industry know that it's actually not at all unusual for columnists to not make that call. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of latitude that a columnist gets and you don't always have to go to your subjects for comment. 
you've done this, I've done this as a columnist, and sometimes I've regretted it, especially when it's a delicate topic, and this is absolutely a delicate topic. We're arguably doing it right now. I didn't call up Christy Blatchford for comment before this segment. There is different standards in the industry for commentary than there is for reporting. I think that where Blatchford is going to find herself in a very tricky position in defending this this article is that the piece, though it was published under full comment, I think to a, a reader would be kind of indistinguishable from a reported piece. You think so? And you can you can argue fair comment. I I, I, I don't know. Because, I don't know. I mean, I think right, that, like, right, right out of the gate, you know whose whose side she's taking. The first line calls Mike Kidd lowly and untenured, this, you know, poor professor man, and then she also. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and and at the very end, she if there was any doubt in your mind, she offers Mike Kidd's GoFundMe page. I mean, hopefully people are making it to the end. She links to his crowdfunding campaign at the end of the article. No, there's no question that she's crusading for him. But within her crusade for him, it reads as a piece of like, I'm on his side and here's what happened. And she makes multiple references to post-media reporting on this and that post-media has looked into this. So you got one defense of like, well, this was commentary. But then if you're trying to do a, a defense against factual inaccuracies, then you get back to the uh, responsible communication defense, which is, did you do your d- due diligence? So in order to account for the factual, you know, you can get things wrong if you tried your hardest to get both sides of the story. I don't know how they're going to, I don't know how they're going to defend this. I'm not really sure how much it would have corrected had she, had she reached out to the, uh, to Tara McPherson, because a lot of it is still very much a, a, a he said, she said. I mean, you mentioned that uh, Christy Blatchford says that she admitted it is a consensual a sexual relationship that Tara McPherson says it wasn't, but there was, uh, I believe, a TV report with CTV. I might be wrong on that, where Tara McPherson had uh, admitted in so much that it was consensual. So, yeah. So, so here's the thing with that. Let's let, let's let's focus on that. Let's focus on that, and, and let's focus on this idea of a he said, she said. So Blatchford does right, like you get that. Now that's okay, factually, to say that she at one point said this was a consensual relationship. You're just reporting something that that she said. Uh, he said, she said, you have to represent that he said something and she said something. Nowhere in the piece does Blatchford write that McPherson's position right now is that it was not consensual. And I don't know the details. Right. I don't know if she was confused or if she was mis- misrepresenting that it was consensual or if aspects of it were consensual and aspects weren't or that her understanding of what consent means evolved. I have no idea. But when Blatchford writes, it was a consensual relationship. She is not writing, in my opinion, it was a consensual relationship, which would give her cover under commentary. And she does not write, though Tara McPherson contends that it is not consensual. She said otherwise before, and I believe the first thing she said and not the second. She writes as fact. So can you file under opinion a verdict that it was a consensual relationship? So as far as I understand the various defenses to a libel claim, it doesn't look to me like she has a leg to stand on. And then, of course, you know, there's the law and then there's the application of it and the circumstances. And the circumstances right now are that the National Post is in terrible shape to defend a claim like this. And I would not be surprised if rather than seeing this play out in court, we see them do something they are loath to do, which is apologize and retract for Christy Blatchford column. 
Oh wow, that's uh, that's a that's a pretty bold prediction. Well, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens uh, with that. There was there was a couple of items in the laundry list of of false claims that I thought were were interesting to me, just as um, as a journalist. One is that the the claim that the tone of the article is inaccurate, and that's an interesting question to me. Can 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 tone be inaccurate? Can you actually get the tone wrong, and can you prove that as well? There's you know the semantics of the legal term unfounded are also take taken to task. Were her accusations unfounded? Well, if we're using the legal term unfounded that that uh, that police use, then then yes, they were. I have a real problem with anyone trying to ding a journalist for their tone. I know that in court, tone can be used to prove malice, if you're, which is an important thing to establish in a libel claim that that the person wasn't just wrong, but that they were out to get you, and and you can infer things from tone that go towards that. You know, I I read this Christy Blatchford thing. Shortly after my conversation with Desmond Cole, when he talked about how certain people can be conceived of as radical activists for the status quo Mm -hmm. And, and reading this piece, this crusading opinion piece that this is a poor man in ruins yeah. uh, and that this woman has just done uh, and ending with like a public plea to send this guy money. I, I, I feel like Blatchford has crossed over from journalist to activist. Well, I mean, she's been she's been doing this for a while, right? She she cherry picks information to serve her cause of advocating against false sexual assault accusations, which if you were to read her column regularly, you would think is completely rampant. I don't I don't actually expect her to do otherwise at this point. I mean, at one point, she even takes a cheap shot at Tara McPherson saying that, you know, she was a poor student. Yeah, which is another thing that Tara McPherson says is just not rooted in in, in fact either. But, but it does just seem like weirdly ad hominem and character assassination-y. And I'll tell you something, between Barbara Kay and Christy Blatchford, who are on a crusade about uh, the victims of sexual assault allegations and, and the, the evils of feminism, why not? There is absolutely a conversation that can be had about, you know, in custody suits, if things are slanted, if they've gone back the wrong way, or, you know, there's sort of like some substantive, there are people who I think are ill-served by these crusades because like, they, they actually might want to have a reasonable discussion about some of the laws that affect men differently than they do women. But it is now under this umbrella of mean-spirited, yeah. kind of incendiary men, MRA stuff that just makes it almost a non-starter. Yeah, I think you're right about that. It certainly doesn't help. Finally, Omar, I want to talk about this artist here in Toronto who had her exhibition canceled censorship anyone because a few people cried cultural appropriation people who obviously don't understand that artists just take from the ether and they play with symbols and signs and jesse i sense a tone of sarcasm in your voice just say you know what i will admit that when i first read this headline and the way it was presented leslieville exhibition canceled after toronto artists work called cultural appropriation and she had all of this indigenous imagery I had a reactionary response of like, come on, yeah. like, what's the big deal if someone's going to use? And it was presented for me to have that eye roll, I think. Or maybe that was just within myself, that that was my, 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 my immediate reaction. But it was everybody, or rather, it was a lot of people's immediate reaction. And I saw this passed around on Facebook. I saw journalists on Twitter, and everyone was like... Yeah, no, I saw it too. I mean, it's, it, it quickly went from cultural appropriation to, to plagiarism in this case. I mean, there, there are there are two questions here with Amanda P.L.'s work. One is, is it possible to culturally appropriate other art forms, but still honor its traditions? And the other question is, is Amanda P.L. a plagiarist? And I think the answer to the first one is very complex. 
And the answer to the second one is that she probably is. I mean, the main artist that she's ripped off is Norval Morisot, uh, right down to his syllabics-inspired signature. But you could also maybe argue that it's inspired, maybe more than stolen, but she certainly ripped off the work of Corey Bulpit and Larissa Healy, passing it off as her own. And it does kind of smack of uh, the whole Joseph Boyden scandal, but she's not Joseph Boyden. I mean, she's not posing as an indigenous person, to my knowledge. She isn't trying to act as a messenger for woodland and Anishinaabe art. She doesn't borrow from it to to mock or degrade indigenous cultures. There's no malicious intent with it. And she acknowledges its origins. And she says that she's inspired by the style and iconography. And I don't think that's that's any more malicious than, you know, when a when a non-black person raps. And she's also not proportionately she's proportionately not Joseph Boyden. She's not very well known. The gallery is a small one, and the artist is young, and the work is clearly not as developed as other work in the same style, which I think maybe leads to a bit of a problem like, you know, why not seek out much, much better woodland style art that exists by indigenous artists? Yeah, I came around on this when people started to one of these things where you just see that there are just two different conversations happening and they both feel like the other the other side is just crazy. When I saw indigenous people on Twitter just like doing side-by-side comparisons of her work and Norval yeah. Morisot's and it's like, "Oh, she just copied that." And she's not copying indigenous art. She's copying Norval Morisot's art and copying it and copying it kind of poorly, copying the signature and you know the whole thing is like if you flip it around, if you think of it as like, oh, what? So we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to say this. We're not allowed, you know. But if you flip it around, if an indigenous artist painted like Warhol's Campbell soup can and said, "Here's my original work," I, I think you'd just be like, "Well, no, that's that's not <laughs> like you can't do that." And uh, you know that doesn't work. We, we would we would we would certainly say that's plagiarism, but whether we would call that cultural appropriation of I don't know white New York pop culture, we would probably not do that. So, uh, you know, again, solitudes here and totally a a double standard that I think does break down along ethnic lines. Like, I think it is something that Mm -hmm. people feel very sensitive that they should have the right to do. You said earlier, it's, it's, is it, is it no more insensitive than a white person rapping? Well, yeah, if the white person is exactly rapping the lyrics and in the style, you know, which is a bit different than just the same form. And that's what we're, that's, that's, you know, what we're, what we're seeing here. With with some of the work, I mean, I mean, some of the work is, I assume, uniquely hers. Not all of it is a complete ripoff. A lot of it is inspired by woodland style art, and we see in her response to this whole fiasco, and and I, I <laughs> it, it has really blown up to a proportion that I did not expect from you know the first couple of pieces. We see what happens when your art is all technical and and not critical. She's simply not able to stand behind her ideas and speak, I think, intelligently to a pretty sensitive issue about whether this devalues indigenous art. We might see this maybe with mass-produced moccasins and dream catchers and gift shops. And then the other question is, is this taking away opportunities from genuine artists whose work is more thoughtful, philosophical, comes from a lived experience? Certainly judging from the quality of her art, I I think it might be taking away from artists who are certainly better and more adept with woodland style paintings. Yeah, I think that we can talk about why why her art, artwork was about to be put on display and not somebody who actually has a legitimate claim to that, who isn't copying, who does it better. By the same token, let's not overstate this. This was like a small exhibition she was going to do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people a lot of people were just feeling like, come on, are you going to ruin this person? She's obviously just a little bit misguided. She's like in her 20s. She hasn't found her voice yet. 
my sympathy for her degraded a little bit when some video surfaced of her making like Asian eyes in a video. Yeah. Uh, but whatever, whatever. I don't want to see somebody like destroyed. I think that like I think there's like this fear of people being destroyed. She's not destroyed. Like she's being criticized. It's okay. Yeah, and there there was also this very this very cheeky message that she wrote about it all being a socially engineered experiment. She's you know has since deleted that, but obviously nobody's buying it. She hasn't been very critical about the artwork that she makes and I am sure that's all about to change. I'm sure she's going to be she's going to put a lot more thought into the work that she does now. Omar, thanks so much today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am really looking forward to uh, bringing Alberta Land to the masses next week. (laughs) Starting Monday, Alberta Land. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. If you email me, I will read what you send me and I will respond to you when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Omar, where can people find you? On Twitter as well at Omar underscore A-O-K. And the title of your book again? Inside the Inferno. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make the show with Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.